You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Good morning, The Field Church. I pray you're experiencing God's grace this morning. And happy Father's Day as we celebrate a day dedicated to recognizing fathers. The role of us fathers is so important in guiding our family to know God, in guiding our family in the Word of God, in guiding our family to share God, in guiding our family to embrace the gospel and in guiding our family to live in the ultimate reality, which is the glory of God. I pray for you, fathers, that you would be present, that you would be patient, that you would be humble, that you would be gentle and that you would be a stable hand and touch and heart for your family to innately feel comforted by. I pray that you would be gentle and lowly like Jesus and that you would be strong and mighty in the strength of his might. As Jesus is, that you would be the perfect combination of the lion and the lamb. Don't give up, dad. I know that you may feel like you have failed and oh, how I struggle with this. But God loves to show mercy. His mercy has a hair trigger. Cry out, forget what lies behind and strain forward towards what lies ahead. As Paul exemplifies in Philippians chapter three, oh, must he have had such a hard time with seeing what lies ahead and forgetting what lies behind because he had murdered Christians. But we too can forget what lies behind Today is the beginning of the rest of your life. You have had a million failures and sins, not just the big ones. And therefore, it is pointless to try and figure out what life would have been like without them. All have sinned, and yet we have what lies ahead. We have always and will always live and lead in the fresh hope and grace of God in spite of our sins. I think there are so many fathers who have given up because they feel like they have already failed. Fathers, you have a uniquely hard role and you have a unique and hard struggle of feeling like a failure, of feeling guilt and shame and either being angry about it or escaping from it. But your family needs you. And the accumulating years of repeatedly asking for forgiveness, picking back up and entrusting yourself to God, trusting his future grace, will by God's grace produce a fruit in your family that you can only praise him for. I hope Paul's words encourage you and direct you. He says in Ephesians chapter four, I therefore 
a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You don't need to amount to anything, Father. You don't need to be anything great or special. He says to walk in a a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. This is what is worthy of that calling, humility and gentleness and patience and love. You don't need to amount to anything. You just need Christ, satisfying joy in Christ and to just humbly serve God's plan and his kingdom. It's just his plan. And we get to be part of serving it. Rest in that. Rest in that. I pray through Christ, by his spirit and his word, that he would make us like our heavenly father. God bless you and be gracious to you and your family, dads. Well, it's not just dads who need encouragement to be all that God has made them to be. It's all of us. And we see this encouragement as well as reproof and rebuke from God's holy word. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn to Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. Luke 9, 23 through 27. Today, our Lord will teach us again what it really means to follow him. And this will be the second level of his instruction in that area. And we will cover verse 24 as we take one thought at a time in this section. So first, let us pray and ask that he would teach us and that we would be transformed in our hearts by his word so that we may understand and conform to his calling of being his true disciples. And then we will read his words. Let's pray. Father, we come and we ask, Lord, that you would teach us once again what it truly means to follow you. And God, I pray that we would look at your words and we would be conformed through the understanding of your words and through the power of your spirit, that we would be conformed into true disciples who follow you. Help us, God, through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. And when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Amen. Today we will continue in our series through the book of Luke and discuss once again our Lord's very words about what it really means to follow him. In Luke's gospel, Jesus, the Christ, our Lord, came in human form as the fulfillment of God's promises and prophecies in the Old Testament. He is God's anointed king, 
the Messiah. He is Jesus, the one who saves. He came to save sinners and reconcile them back to God and give them new life in the spirit. And as we remember during the first phase of his ministry, he established that he indeed was the great Christ, God's Christ, through many proofs and testimonies. And the crowds rejected him, but the disciples believed. After his identity had been settled, Jesus told his disciples not to tell anyone, which would be a judgment on those who wouldn't believe, as well as a refusal to go along with Israel's desire to make him the earthly king, which he knew would be meaningless. Jesus would not be deterred from or distracted from the truly meaningful mission, which was to suffer, be rejected, die, and raise for the salvation of souls and the glory of his Father. So Jesus gives the disciples insight into what it truly means for him to be the Messiah and what he is focused on accomplishing. And this was the opposite of what the Jewish crowds assumed the Messiah would do. And Jesus was the opposite of who the crowds assumed the Christ would be. And God's plan for salvation for the Jews and the world was the opposite of how the Jewish crowds believed God would accomplish it. The only way was for him to be a sacrificial lamb, slaughtered to appease God's wrath for sin, to offer forgiveness to those who would believe in him by faith and that they would believe that he is God's Christ. Now, now in this moment that they do believe that he is God's Christ, Jesus begins to give this insight to the disciples in verses 21 through 22 in Luke chapter 9 of his need now to, to suffer. It reads this in verses 21 through 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He is bringing them along now. He is teaching them God's true plan and purpose for the Messiah. And although they believe who he is, they don't fully get it that he must suffer. They haven't put it all together. And as we will see even later, Peter attempts to even prevent his Lord from being hurt. In Matthew 26, we see the scene. While he was still speaking, Judas came one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. That was Peter. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. 
Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guests to see the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they may put him to death. This was the plan, that he would suffer. We see that, that the disciples and Peter even trying to protect Jesus didn't fully understand even at the end that he had, as the Messiah, willingly come to die, to lay down his life for his sheep. And again, at this point now, Jesus is beginning to bring them into that understanding. We see this example even again in the testimony of the exact same scene uh, that we are reading about in Luke chapter 9, but this time in Matthew chapter 16. It says, when Jesus came into the the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then look at this. He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. This is now the scene in Luke 9, that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus is establishing at this point that he must suffer. And this is the opposite of what they thought would happen with the Messiah. But this was God's plan. So now that his identity has been settled among the disciples, he is out to establish the next truth, which is by bringing them into the understanding that he has not come to be a decorated earthly ruler. For he knows that that would be far more meaningless than they understand. But instead, he must die and he must Uh, uh, be rejected and he must suffer in order to get them to God forever. Now, what we see directly following this explanation of who he is and what he must do in both Matthew's account 
uh, which we just read, as well as Luke's account that we are in today, Luke 9, and even in Mark's account, they're all the same sequence on this account, is that if anyone would want to come after him, they must understand that it entails following him in his ways, in his steps, and it may be different than they traditionally believed. Where he is going and what he must be is what God in his infinite wisdom has declared to be the holy path of love. But it's going to be different from what they perceived in the flesh. Where he is going and how he saves and sanctifies his people is through suffering and rejection and death. And this is also the way God has planned for his gospel to go forth. So if you want him, if you believe he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, if you truly believe that, then you will make him superior and be willing to pay the cost of following him, which is your life, to have him as your own. You will follow where he is going, which leads us to verse 23, which we saw last week. This is where we left off. It says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, what I find interesting is that in this scenario, Jesus isn't begging people to follow him. He isn't continually reminding them to follow him. He's not sending reminder texts. He isn't taking it upon himself in a needy way or in a way that puts any fleshly pressure on himself. He is simply laying the choice before them and he's preaching his message. They must choose just as you must choose. This is a supernatural work of God, of course, to believe, but he is not concerned with any fleshly motive. He is giving them the words of eternal life. In fact, Luke's later picture of similar words from Jesus, watch the setting. Luke 14, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned to them and he said, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In this scenario, the crowds were coming, but that didn't matter to Jesus. It was meaningless. He was concerned to preach the gospel and present the truth and make real disciples. He had no insecurities that drove him to be elated or confirmed by the crowds. That's immaturity. He turned to the crowds and he said, now you understand crowds as they're coming. Now you understand everybody. If you're going to come after me, I'm going to call you to a level of commitment that I am going to be superior, that your commitment to your father your mother, your brother, your sister will sometimes look like hate because you will be so radically committed to me and my true word and call. That's what he said to the crowds. You understand this. If you're coming after me, this is what it means. This is the level of commitment that I require. And this is the opposite of what most American churches would deem as good growth strategies and leadership principles, most of which think that they have figured out the formula to strategically say things in such a way to get and keep people coming, 
either with their charisma or their charm or the way they present their message. And most Americans, upon seeing the crowds, maybe via the internet, of large crowds automatically think that that church is winning. And it's beneficial to them to be a part of it because they will win at life too if they become a part of that. Most of the strategies will look at Jesus and say, Jesus, what are you doing? You have crowds. We're going to have this place full of people. They're going to give. Don't say it like that. Just be more accepting. Just don't say it like that. Use tact and strategy. But Jesus was purely concerned with their souls and his father's glory. And no one's soul is going to be saved without them hearing the true message and responding to it purely. He just deeply taught the truth and let the father do the drawing. So we see his first words last week in the biblical perspective of following him. And this is what he said. These are the aspects of saving faith. Verse 23, which we just read involved anyone at all. This is for all people. It is what is required to have him, not just forgiveness or heaven. And the requirements involve, first of all, as we saw last week, denying yourself. Now, this is making Jesus superior, as we discussed. It's not asceticism that is void of God. Your mere denial of self doesn't please God. It's making him supreme in your life, which involves a denial of self and following him. It's also not ultimate self-denial. Listen, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus to follow him, you have done so to receive him and rightly so and his promises, and forgiveness, and new life, and eternal life. That's not ultimate self-denial. You're getting instead what's right and what's better, namely God and his benefits. We are hardwired to pursue God. We need to understand this. We are hardwired to pursue what we most desire. And he is helping us get the object of that desire right in the way in which he created you with him as the right object, him as the superior one, which involves denial of all others. He's replacing here everything else with him. This is amazing. The fact that ultimate self-denial is impossible, the fact that that is inherently true, like gravity, is proof that we are hardwired to pursue God. But this is tangible proof, right? We hear or we say it all the time that we're hardwired to pursue God. This is tangible proof, the fact that we are aimed to pursue what we most desire. This is tangible proof. If God is objectively the greatest ultimate reality, which is just true, nothing could be greater, and we follow what we most desire, that's how we're wired, then we were rightly designed to pursue the greatest thing that we could desire, which is him. We are designed then to glorify God by enjoying him forever. We are made to enjoy him, the most superior one. That's why the first greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart supremely. But then sin, what happens is sin then is when the Bible says we replace the creator with created thing, 
for what we most desire and pursue. We traded him in for lesser pleasures. We're busy building sandcastles when we have a wonderful beach or mud pies when we have a beautiful, expansive beach of sand and water. They become these little trinkets, what we most desire. And then we follow those idols. It doesn't make any sense because he set it up perfectly. This is how it works. He set it up perfectly that we are designed to pursue what we most desire. And he is inherently the most desirable one. And so we are designed to pursue him. We are hardwired for God. This is why his glory being seen is his main objective. Because when his glory is being seen, people are getting their most desirable thing, God, which we are hardwired for pursuing what we most desire. That's true love on God's part. We are hardwired to pursue what would give us greatest joy. And he is the object of greatest joy, giving us the most desirable and satisfying Thing that he could give us himself. That's love. Consider, friends, then the connection between worship and glory. It should be said that we are made to worship. That's equivalent to what I've just been telling you. We are made to worship what we most desire. Worship is God's goal for you, God's goal for us. Worship of what we most desire. Now, worship is the term that we use to cover all aspects of the heart and the mind and the body that intentionally express the infinite worth of God. Worship is the expression of the enjoyment, of the love, of the savoring of, of the declaration of the superiority of God. If ultimate self-denial doesn't exist, we instead were hardwired to pursue what we most desire and God is rightly the most desirable one, then we were made to pursue God. And if that pursuit is called worship, then we were made to worship God. Consider that we were made in the image of God as proof that this is true. This is an expression of glory. The fact that we were made in his image is an expression of God's glory, God's goodness being made visible. It's an expression of his glory. This is one of the ways he expresses his glory. That, that's God, what God chose to populate the earth with, images of himself or his glory. Why? So that it causes us to worship. When we see other people and their uniqueness, we say, wow, God is great. His glory causes worship in us. That's worship. So God's glory is so important because it causes worship. Worship of him is the goal. And that's the best thing that God could give us. He's worthy of it. So let me tie this together. Jesus is saying, if you want me, if you want me as what you most desire, which is what you were created for, as what you most desire, you will pursue me and therefore deny everything else that is the essence of the proof that you want me. I must become superior. And if I am superior, you will pursue me as most desirable. And if you don't want 
this, if you don't show this, if you don't deny yourself, you're not worthy to be my disciple. You haven't really believed in who I am. Because if you did, your pursuit would follow. If you believed I was God and my words were the words of eternal life and that my glory reigns in all the earth and I created everything, you would follow me if you truly believe that. If you believe in me truly, you have seen me truly, this would be a no-brainer because you would follow me as proof that I am what you most desire and which I inherently should be. This would be proof if you deny yourself, take up your cross, die to yourself every day, follow him in his place. That would be the proof of that, the, that there's saving faith. You must believe in him in order to truly follow him. And if you don't give up your life and deny yourself, then you haven't believed in him. Look at Hebrews 11 verse six. And without faith, is it, impo- it is impossible to please him. Forever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. If you're not willing to deny himself, Deny yourself. If you're not willing to deny yourself, he is not superior. And therefore, you don't really believe in him. Because he is inherently superior. Keep in mind, this denying of yourself is directly related to suffering for him. And we're going to pick that up in a moment. But if you're not willing to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, you don't really believe in him. Because you would follow him as the son of God. This is his calling to do what we were created to do. Come after him, know him, be satisfied in him, display his infinite worth. And if we truly believe that he's the Christ, the Messiah, if these disciples truly believe that, it's a no brainer. They're gonna give up their life for him because eternity's at stake. His glory's at stake. Being satisfied in him is at stake. The second thing coming after him involves, and just briefly, is taking up your cross daily. Now, this is not living for yourself, but for him, all day, every day. In the first act of salvation, this occurs, and then every day from there forward. Taking up your cross daily, which is an instrument of death, as we discussed last week, and this overlaps with denying yourself. And thirdly, in place of yourself, in place of your life, you follow him. His word, his ways, his road by faith. This is the calling. Now, as we move into verse 24, let's read it again. Verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What a a powerful verse for us. Here we have one point. And that point is the essence of saving faith is dying to yourself to get Jesus. That's what he's saying here. The essence of saving faith is dying to yourself to get Jesus. This is the essence of saving faith. This is why he would say what he just say said. This is why he would say and and explain what he just explained. This is why you would do what he just said to do, which is deny yourself and follow him in order to get him. This is why you would do that. This is the grounds for which you would deny yourself to get Jesus, because this is the essence of saving faith, denying yourself 
to get him is the essence of saving faith. So this is why you would do this. Let's look at this and let me explain. After Jesus says, if anyone wants him, he must deny himself, die to himself, and replace his life pursuit with Jesus, he says the word for. Look at it with me in verse 24. He says for. And this connects us with the previous flow of thought. And it signifies to us that this is either the grounds. Now this verse 24, connected to verse 23, this is either the grounds or the basis or the reason or the motive or something similar for why he just said what he said. And so here we find it's the grounds or the reasoning of why he said what he just said in verse 23. It's a further description of sorts, but it's more than that. He's going to give us this word again for, in verse 25, look at it, for what does it profit a man? So we see that again, and he's going to give us a motive there of why you would want to do this. And again, in verse 26, as another description, he's going to use the word for to begin that verse in support of his original claim to discipleship. So all of these thoughts divided by these verses are overlapping and they support and clarify each other. If you read them over and over again, I believe it would become clear to you. So follow along. He says, if you want me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. For, here's the essence of saving faith. This is why you would do what he just said to do. Whoever, now again, this applies to everyone, right? He says, whoever, you're not exempt. This is a general reality for how anyone responds to him in his gospel. He says, whoever, you're not unique in being exempt from this. Whoever would save his life. Now in this verse, he uses the word life twice. Look at it. Verse 24, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He uses the word life twice. They are both used to describe your life here on earth. Let's uncover what he's saying here. They are both used to describe your life here on earth. On earth. And the literal translation of this is whoever wills to save his life. So if you will to save your life on earth, this is what he's saying. Here's why you would do what I just said to do, which is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Here's the grounds. This is the essence of saving faith. You must do this to be saved. This is what he's saying. For, here's the reasoning again. Whoever, it involves anyone, would save his life. So in this instance, what he's saying here, if you will save your life on earth. These, this, there's two times that the word life is used. And in this passage, they are both used to describe life on earth. And the literal translation is whoever wills to save his life. So if you will to save your life on earth, right? That's what he's saying. But he could use the word life a third and a fourth time, okay? So he uses it instead. Look at it, it. Verse 24, whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
So it could be read, will lose his life and will save his life. But in those instances, even though life is implied in both of those cases, Jesus is referring to a different life in those instances where he uses the word it. He is referring there to eternal life. So it could read, if you follow along, this is how it could read. For whoever wills to save his life on earth will lose his eternal life. But whoever loses, now interesting, when he says loses, he doesn't say wills to lose, but actually loses. Which is interesting because in saying your life here on earth, you are willing to save it. You're willing yourself to save it. You can will to do it, but in the end, your goal is not going to be accomplished. It's going to be up to God anyway to determine how long you live and what this life looks like for you, and you're gonna lose it anyway. You actually end, don't end up with your goal, which is saving your life. You won't end up saving it. So whoever wills to save his life will lose it. But again, Here's what we're determining is the, the ideas of the word life being used. It could read again the following. Follow along, ready? Whoever wills to save his life on earth will lose his eternal life. But whoever loses his life on earth for my sake will save his eternal life. So those two instances that we can insert life for it, it would refer to an eternal life. We can see this clarified in other passages, such as John 12, verse 25. Jesus says, whoever loses his, or whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So now we understand that he is talking about losing our life on earth not saving our life on earth in order to save our eternal life and not lose our eternal life. So now the first part, if you will to save your earthly life, look at this, ready? If you will, for whoever would save his life, if you will to save your earthly life, that's what he's saying here. Now, remember, this is inextricably tied to suffering. Jesus just got done with describing what the Messiah must truly do is suffer to complete his task. Suffer, be rejected, die. And if anyone would come after him, they must follow him. Verse John 12, 25 through 26. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am. There my servant will be also. This is what he's saying. This is where I must go. And anywhere I go, my servant will follow along with me if he believes. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. And so this is what he's saying. If I'm going here, this is where you must go. That's why they must deny themselves, die to themselves, because to follow him, you will follow in his steps. So when Jesus says here, if you will save your earthly life, he is not necessarily referring to talking about living life up to its fullest, although that might be a motive for saving it. He is talking about saving it from suffering, preventing rejection, and willing to save it from death. 
and instead of following him, preserving your life. If you desire to avoid suffering, especially for his sake, but avoid suffering generally, so much so that you decide not to follow him in his ways, because that's what true devotion will come along with, then you will lose your eternal life. That's what he's saying. Later on in Luke, Jesus puts it this way. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Oh, how I wish that we would get this. Suffering for doing good is the normal call of a Christian because that is primarily the way that God has shown his love. And that is the primary way that we will show his love and his worth. God in his infinite wisdom has flipped what we would naturally think. Listen, suffering is normal for Christianity. We have to embrace this for three reasons. Number one, suffering while clinging to Christ shows his infinite worth. Suffering for doing good, for doing good, Suffering while clinging to Christ is a greater way to display his worth than clinging to Christ while experiencing ease. Clinging to Christ when you have cancer is a greater way to display his worth to a world who needs Christ than to cling to Christ when you're healthy. Clinging to Christ when he is disciplining you and eradicating some of your besetting sins in your life is a greater way to display his worth than doing so while acting like you're all good. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Suffering while clinging to Christ shows his infinite worth. That's why he's made this normal of the Christian. Secondly, suffering is important because suffering to serve others exemplifies true love. Suffering to serve others exemplifies true love. This is the greatest way to show true love. So suffering to serve others is also the greatest way that true love is displayed. We don't flaunt our suffering like, look at how I'm suffering to serve you, but we sacrifice on others' behalf. Contrary to what the Jews believed that the Christ would do, his plan was to suffer. Again, this is upside down. They didn't understand this. They thought instead he would be victorious here on earth. But his suffering to pay for our sins was how God chose to display his great love for us. In, his, in God's infinite wisdom, he knew that this was inherently how things worked, but we just naturally thought the opposite. Look at John 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. This is the greatest way to display love, true, genuine love, suffering for another person's sake. This is why the gospel goes forth mainly through suffering to evangelize and disciple, rejection, hardship, loss of my stuff, loss of my life to get the gospel forth. This is why it's the most effective way to my neighbors, to the unreached in the face of rejection and persecution. Jesus said, welcome that. Welcome when they reject 
because of your message. John 15 says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Look at this in Matthew chapter five. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Suffering is the greatest way in which God helps us to show his great love. This is the greatest way he showed his love. Suffering shows his infinite worth. That's why it's normal for Christians. Suffering shows great love as he showed his great love for us by suffering, right? And thirdly, suffering is the greatest way God sanctifies you. It's the greatest way God sanctifies you. God uses suffering to humble us, to make us more like Christ, to change us, to prepare us, to use us. If we will let him, Listen, I see so many Christians either covering up their suffering or pushing it away or wondering why it's happening or being discouraged and trying to pretend it's not so they look great in the eyes of others or describing it only as how Satan is using it or describing it away or embarrassed of it or thinking of it as something that is out of the ordinary and especially not taking the time of really asking what is God trying to do in me through this? So we never learn and grow. We act like suffering is the unique or the extra circumstance and ease is, is normal. It's the opposite. And so what we'll do in the midst of suffering is we'll continue or we'll just endure and wish it away so that we can go back to life as it was. I, I can't wait till this season of suffering is over so I can go back to who I was and back to how I was living. And so we can go back to the life that we had. That's our mindset. So I can be free of this and go back to living normally. But that's our very problem. God doesn't want us to go back to how we were or how it was, just waiting for the tension to be gone so we can resume being free to be us. That's not what he wants. He wants us to grow. I pray that we would stop and see things that he is trying to to change in us instead of strategically trying to figure out how to end the problem and go back to normal life so I can be free of this tension. That's not what he wants to do. He, he's using it to change us. For me, God had brought hardship after hardship to humble me. And I didn't see it. I tried to fight through it to go back to me until he showed me I saw my pride, not saying that I won't have any more hardships because I've seen it, but I can identify that I never took the time to actually stop and see that in it, he was trying to change me. I just wished it away so I can go back to me and my ways. And that's not what God wanted. He wanted to produce in me humility. Hebrews chapter 12, for at the moment, discipline, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. He's humbling you in your suffering. Take it, see it, don't want to go back to normal. Change in it. See the, the instances and the ways in which he's trying to sanctify you and, and allow him to do it. Don't wish it away or pretend it doesn't happen or, or even think that it's, that it's unique or that it, 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 you don't want it to be so or excuse it away because 
because you're embarrassed that God is, is doing this in your life. Allow him to humble you. As it is, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 through 10, Paul says this to the, to the Corinthians. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, regret whereas worldly grief produces death. For we see, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. That's what Jesus wants to do through our suffering. 1 Peter 5, 9 through 10. Humble yourself, therefore under the mighty hand of God, as suffering and discipline takes place, so that the, at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Christian, suffering is part of the call. It's the normal. It's not the unique. It's the normal part. He uses it in this way. And all of these ways. Listen, I wish that we would see this and God would call us into a, a proper understanding of what this Christian life will look like. But look at 1 Peter 2, 19 through 24. It just makes it so clear. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? If when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, this, which is what? Suffering for doing good. That's to this you have been called. This is what you've been called to. Because Christ also suffered for doing good, the ultimate good. That's what his plan was, to suffer for doing good. That's the whole plan of the cross. Leaving for you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's what we're called to do. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile. In return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that he, he might, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, by his suffering, we are healed. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14, one more. Look at this normalcy. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for my name, for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Wow, what an incredible thing. So suffering displays the infinite worth of God. Suffering is the way in which we show the greatest type of love and suffering is the way in which God sanctifies us. Don't wish that away. Don't pretend like something is, is strange is happening or try to, uh, to, to figure it out or to describe it or to excuse it away. Allow it to be, God is changing me. Let me stop and see the areas that he wants to change me. Back to verse 24, he's saying, if you're gonna save this life and avoid suffering and preserve right now, and even in to do so, even if it's for the, not just suffering's sake, but it's also to experience all the benefits of earth. Jesus and his requirements don't line up with what I want. 
and, and it's more subtle than you think. You, you see it everywhere, really. Recognition here on earth, media likes, materials, pleasures, freedoms, wealth, the American dream. I want that, and Jesus is a hindrance to that. I don't want to give up my life, my pursuits, my money, my time. I want to prevent suffering more than I want to follow Jesus. And because Jesus in his kingdom is not superior to me, for his sake, when he says his sake here involves him and advancing his kingdom, those are inseparable. His sake is him and his kingdom. And this is what the picture is. If you're gonna save your life, Jesus says, verse 24, if you try to do this, will to save your life, if you do that, you will lose your eternal life. This is the reason to do what he had said to do in verse 23, because this is the essence of saving faith. The essence of saving faith is that you believe in him and want him as God, believing in his radical words and promises, needing his forgiveness in the gospel. And therefore, although it may sting for 80 years, there's no other way. As C.S. Lewis put it, he is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is God. There is no in-between. His words were too extreme to find any other place. If you believe he is God, you're following those radical words, period. This is the basis or the grounds for why you must deny yourself, die to yourself, follow him in order to get him because saving faith is displayed by a belief in who he is and what he has accomplished for salvation and such a need for forgiveness and him being superior. Therefore, he is superior. And if you're not willing to come after him, no matter the cost, then you don't believe in him. This is what he's saying. You're not really coming after him. It's not saving faith because if it was, none of that would matter. You would know that this life does not matter if you really had saving faith. You would know that this life does not matter. Verse 24, this is the second part of the verse. After he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Here's the positive. But whoever loses his life, his life here on earth, for my sake, me and my kingdom will save it, his eternal life. Whoever, again, anyone, this is a grace. We talked about whoever before and it brought about a negative connotation like this is for everyone, you're not exempt. But here it's a gracious one. Whoever, no matter what you've done, who you are, how old you are, how bad you've been, how much your life is full of sin, no matter your struggles or your race or your job or your, uh, or your family line, whoever loses his life, his earthly life, denies himself, takes up his cross and follows Jesus, willing to suffer, following no matter the cost, for his sake, for him and his ways and his kingdom as superior, will save his eternal life. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is not ultimate self-denial. This has an end goal of getting what we want, which is him eternally alive with him. 
This is the kind of coming after him that displays true belief in him as the Christ and in his gospel for the forgiveness of sin. Therefore, the person who has this kind of true saving faith will be saved. So church, the reason why we should deny and die and follow is because this is the true picture of saving faith. This is the cost of following Jesus. Have you made this kind of decision to follow Jesus? Is this your definition of Christianity and of following him? This is the Christ's first choice of words to describe the cost of discipleship and the essence of saving faith. And I pray that you have or that you would decide to follow Jesus in this true and biblical way. Let's pray. Father, we come and we ask you to bless your word. Cause it to well up in us eternal life. And I pray, God, that those who hear your words, your spirit would cause supernatural work to drive them into true discipleship of you, Jesus, and a belief that saves. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.